0: To say that we do respect what the government's trying to do, and we do want to make sure that we do that as the best as we can. But with that said, we also don't want to be um, ridiculous about it. And there's practicalities that are involved that um, make things sometimes challenging. So while things will be a bit different, like you've obviously noticed that you're a bit spread out, um, things things are a bit different. But there's also going to be some things that don't change. So I just wanted to point out a couple of things about this that that we're not going to do, okay, so no one's going to be running around with a two metre ruler measuring the distance between you because if you've ever tried the two metre practicality you'll notice that it ends up being quite challenging um, and this is just, this is the the reality of it. Um, We're not also going to be dousing people in sanitizer. okay, so partly because all those little spray bottles were sold out at Mitre 10. Um, but also we thought that's probably a bit expensive. We did look at the sanitising gun, um, but again, that was sold out, so we've decided not to go with those. And again, masks is probably something that people are like, oh, should I, shouldn't, I should, I should. So it's, it's completely and 100% totally up to you. I did want to point out that um, we do provide masks, and again, you're welcome to wear them if you want to, if you don't want to, but if you're struggling to think You know, what are some good mask options? I do have some for you. So there's just a classic straight up (laughs) shoe, which is very easy. Obviously the shoelaces are quite helpful. Um, Or anything you've got lying around at home, a water bottle. Um, If you want to take it to the next level, you can add a filter to it. So that's kind of a good option. This one is um, my personal favorite, just (laughs) a piece of lettuce. It's obviously got to be the right size and shape and natal- a Natalajar, which could be perhaps a little bit overwhelming. But if you're really looking for the best um, virus protection, then this is what I would suggest. Uh, if you can't read it, it says Norton Antivirus. Um, so yeah, anyway, but those are some things that we're not going to be pushing. Um, there's some things that we aren't going to do, but there's definitely some things that we are going to do. And we are going to worship together, we are going to pray together, and we are going to learn and open God's word together. And for us, that's why we are gathering in person or why other people will be listening to stuff uh, online later. So we want to just remind you that we are here this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is who we are celebrating, honouring, worshipping. Kim's right, you know, we have been through quite a lot of change. Uh, in New Zealand, certainly, and like, not compared to the rest of, or many countries in the rest of the world, like you know, they've still going through a lot of change. But um, I think New Zealanders have had a lot of change in the last 18 months, and and probably in the south, in the southern part of the country, we find that hard because probably if I, if I think I've kind of nailed it. Southerners are pretty skeptical about anything that's new if it doesn't have a track record. Would that be a fair statement? Like, you've got to kind of prove yourself in the South. And do you know who I blame for that? I blame infomercials. And I'll tell you why. Because infomercials are always about the latest and greatest, you know, like the biggest and best, and they just have no proven track record. So, um, it's normally someone who's just modified something to make a quick few dollars, like, you know, the double-headed mop or the titanium drills or the neck massage pillow, which velcros around your neck or something crazy. And, and it's normally just, we're just sceptical about those things because they're cheap, they're rubbish, and they have no proven track record. But, but every now and then, something comes along which is so amazing, so mind-blowing that it just revolutionizes your life. May I present to you this. Does anybody know what this is? It is the Abflex from 1993. Okay, now I'm not going to do a show of hands of who's got one uh, at home. But the Abflex in 1993, when that came out, that revolutionized fitness okay so for decades people had had to do sit-ups you know and crunches and all that sort of stuff to get a washboard ab um, like the Incredible Hulk or some lady with washboard abs I can't think of anybody but you know that's what people were obviously wanting and with the ab flex if you've never seen it before in action and you're welcome to go and watch the old videos on YouTube like I have that this was just a brand new product with this brand new technique so you uh, you took the handles and you held this thing, this arrow thing, like sort of pointing away from you, but the red and the black thing here on your midsection, and you pulled it in like this, and then you let it go. And then you pulled it in like this, and then you let it go. And that was <laughs> apparently the way in three easy minutes to get a washboard stomach and the abflex sold thousands and thousands of units in new zealand throughout the 90s i, mean, I know that some of you have possibly had this at some point and in fact collect, if you've got it you should dust it off uh, well, you probably don't even need to dust it off because you probably only use it for 3 minutes a day but it's collectors item now i could only find one on ebay for 120 bucks i mean there you go so 30 years ago, this product came out and it just revolutionised home fitness and the health of New Zealands, and everybody that bought one was just trimmed and toned and just had this perfect washboard stomach, right? I sense a degree of scepticism. 30 years later, the Abflex is relegated to, not even at Wastebusters, when I went down to try and find one, they didn't have any. Um, it has not proven itself over 30 years to be all that it was hyped up to be. And here's a fascinating thing. So <clears throat> 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ experienced a similar level of skepticism from some of his leaders. He kind of, he bur- from his listeners, he burst onto the scene in the first century in Palestine, and he started healing people, and he performed miracles, and he attracted huge crowds, and there was this, there was this massive hype. Like, people were wondering, what's going on? Who is this guy? Is he doing something new? And Jesus was actually doing something new. So, way back, like... Five or six weeks ago, you may recall, we were in a teaching series uh, which was called New, and we were looking at what Jesus came to do. He came to bring something new to the world, but he also came to do something new for the world. And that was really, really significant, and it was hugely attractive for people at the time. Like The crowds that listened to Jesus, they were just amazed. They were astonished that all he did and all he said. And then at the height of his popularity... Jesus delivered what's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, this is arguably some of the most well-known teachings of Jesus contained in this, uh, in this speech. Re- regardless of whether you think Jesus is the divine son of God or whether you think he was just a good moral man, in the Sermon on the Mount we see a lot of his ideas that have actually been recognized worldwide for their inspiring principles and teachings and so in the sermon of the mount if i could just summarize it for you jesus presents a new world order he basically flips the script he he turns the status quo upside down and he presents a new way of thinking a new way of living and a new way of being for people and and jesus teaching was vastly different from what the crowds traditionally heard so they were so surprised, so amazed. It was such a contrast at what Jesus was teaching them to what they had been previously taught and thought. It was so new, and it was, it was really, really challenging. It was hard for them to get their head round then, and it still is hard for us to get our head round today. So I'm going to share with you just a very brief section of the Sermon on the Mount. It might be quite familiar with you. You're welcome to follow along. It's Uh, The very start of Matthew chapter 5 in the Bible, if you've got one. One day, as he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up uh, on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them Blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now even at just that first glance, you can see how the the values of this new world order that Jesus is promoting are in a stark contrast to the values of our world. So one commentator took a list and and made a list of the values that would actually apply in the world that we live in. And this is is what he wrote. Happy are the wealthy, for they can do whatever they want. Happy are the pushers, for they get ahead in the world. Happy are the hard-nosed, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never care about their wrongs. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the self-assured people of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Now when you look at that list and you look at Jesus' list, it's very clear that the, the new world order that Jesus is presenting is in a stark contrast to the values of, of our world. So very quickly this morning, I just want to drill down into two of the statements that Jesus said, just so we can kind of get a glimpse of what he's all about. This is the first one. Um, blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now at the time when Jesus said that, the prevailing worldview was that the rich people were the blessed people. If you were wealthy, then clearly God had blessed you. And so the the Jewish people took the the cue from their history, their forefathers, the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were very, very wealthy men. And they also had kings in their lineage, like King David and King Solomon, both of which had vast, vast fortunes. So it was assumed in the first century that if you were rich, you were blessed by God. And I wonder if there's, if there's some sort of remnant of that thinking in our modern culture, maybe even in ourselves. You know, if someone is wealthy, we sort of view them as having done well, as having been successful, as things working out for them, and, and God is therefore good for that person. You might be familiar with this lady, Rahana, she's a uh, pop singer. Uh, business lady. Very, very good at both of those. So recently Forbes magazine estimated her net worth to be $1.7 billion. She's one of the few women who is a billionaire, I think the second most wealthiest entertainer or woman in entertainment, um, which is pretty good. And so when some newspaper journalists asked her you know, how would she respond to her net worth being $1.7 billion, these are her exact words. God is good. Now, maybe you would say that if you had $1.7 billion in the bank. But there's kind of other things that we think um, wealth can provide. So let me roll back uh, to the 90s, to this guy, Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, He played 13 seasons for the Chicago Bulls and during those 13 years uh, his his salary was 300 million dollars, which is pretty good. You know he earned way way more than that through endorsements, through sponsorship, through a whole lot of deals. Some of you might even have a pair of his shoes in the wardrobe, not his shoes personally but you know the same kind of branding and stuff. Anyway when he retired in 1993 Uh, This is what the owner of the Chicago Bulls Club said about Michael Jordan. He said, Jordan is living the dream. The dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, and you can do everything that you do want to do. Now I think if you had $300 million in the bank, it would be very easy to say that it'd be very easy to do what you wanted to do and not do what you didn't want to do. And I think just like the ancient Jewish people, we, <coughs> we see that wealth brings the ability to do what we want to do and to not do what we don't want to do. And I think, if we're really honest, we kind of view that as, as being blessed. But according to Jesus, in God's economy, in this new world order, it was actually the poor who were blessed. It was the hard up. They were the ones who will find favor with God. And have you ever wondered why that is? I don't know for sure, but maybe it's because the poor might be acutely aware of their need for help. Perhaps the poor might realize they have very limited options. Perhaps the poor might be more desperate or more dependent on others for their basic needs and therefore look to God as their first port of call rather than... A last resort. Well, Jesus' message was that the good news was for the poor, that the kingdom of, uh, of earth, in the kingdom of earth, the poor are overlooked and are left out, but in this eternal kingdom of heaven that Jesus is presenting, the poor are included. They have inheritance, they have value because they realize their need for God. That was a revolutionary teaching. Here's another one that Jesus shared. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Now, I wasn't there, and and this is only speculation, but I think that when Jesus said this, when he said these words, there was a real murmur which rippled through the crowd of his listeners. Because there were men and women listening to Jesus who knew what it was to be ceremonially clean. So in the Jewish scriptures, which... Christians call the Old Testament, there's around 600 guidelines that God gave (coughs) the Jewish people to be physically and spiritually pure during their daily life. So some of these are around health and hygiene uh, and just kind of washing and avoiding contamination and that sort of thing, but others are protecting uh, individuals, families, (coughs) from the harmful influence of of non-Jewish nations. But by the time of the first century, the religious leaders of the Jewish people had added over 1,500 extra explanations and clarifications and all that sort of stuff. And and they competed with each other to see who could be the most religiously rigorous, who could strictly follow the rules and keep themselves the most ceremonially clean. And so at the time, it's understandable that the majority of people believed that the religious leaders were the closest to God because they were the most ceremonially pure. They were the ones who followed the rules the closest. But Jesus said, those who see God, those who will see God, are the ones who have pure hearts. This is an internal thing, not an external thing. It's not about a condition of, you know, Uh, um, keeping your your body clean. Purity is about a heart and a soul. It's about having that, recognizing that it's not just about the rules and regulations, but it's about our faults and confessing our failures and connecting humbly with God. So again, just another really revolutionary teaching from Jesus there, but I just wanted to simply give you a snapshot, just a very small portion of the Sermon on the Mount, because in that, Jesus is presenting a new world order, a new way of thinking, and it really, really rattled his listeners. It flipped things upside down. It was so different so different to how they'd been taught and what they thought, and it was really, really hard for them to get their heads around. And if you just read the first few lines, those eight lines of the Sermon on the Mount, I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is, where are you at with this new world order that Jesus is promoting? Because his original listeners were really uncomfortable with it. And as Jesus unfolded the Sermon on the Mounts, He kind of continued to really challenge the crowd, to really push them to to look at much that had gone before, a lot of the traditions that they held to, and then flip that on that on on its head. So if you read through the rest of chapter five, Jesus makes six really interesting statements. They start out with this. You have heard it was said, he fills in the blank, but I say, and he fills in the blank. And so you'll probably be familiar with some of these. You've heard it was said, but I say, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, do not even get angry. Or well, Jesus said, You've heard it was said, Do not commit adultery, but I say, Do not even look lustfully. Or you've heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, Love your enemies. Now, these were really, really unsettling for the Jewish people. Jesus was challenging some long held traditions which they held on to. And, and he was promoting this new world order, he was calling them to a new way to live. And it was uncomfortable really uncomfortable, but it was also really compelling. Jesus was proclaiming a new world order, a new kingdom which looked very different to what the Jewish people were used to. You think about it, usually when you are going to establish some sort of new world order, you need one of three things. You need some military mights, you need some political power, or you need some economic influence. So in the year 330 BC, Alexander the Great and his Greek armies, they conquered much of the known world and part of that was they conquered ancient Palestine which is now modern day Israel. And they used their military mites to conquer the nations and then once they'd conquered those territories, Alexander introduced the Greek language, introduced Greek culture, Greek customs, the Greek religions and Greek architecture. And this process was called... Hellenization or basically making them become Greek and he just wanted to impose his new world order his Greekness onto the subject peoples to make them more Greek more like him a few centuries later the Romans (coughs) did something similar So they conquered Palestine in the year 63 BC. They exerted political power over that region. They stationed troops to just crush any rebellions. And then the Romans influenced uh, trade and commerce and the economy. And that's how they did it. But in stark contrast to the ways of the world, Jesus was not imposing a new world order. He was inviting people to freely join this new world order, to to freely enter into God's kingdom. And it was so new for those Jewish people, it was so uncertain because it was so unproven. Jesus had no track record. But Jesus also anticipated their hesitations. He knew that his listeners were unsettled, and so he gave them some reassurance of his intention. This is what he said. "'Don't misunderstand why I've come.' I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Now, I don't know if this reassured people, but certainly it showed them that Jesus was not a radical revolutionary that was just going to cast everything aside. He actually aligned himself with God's Word, with the law, and with the prophets. And what you need to know is that the law and the prophets is a reference to the Old Covenant, which we see contained in in the the Christian Bible in the Old Testament. Christians didn't call it the Old Testament until 100 years after Jesus. For the Jews, it wasn't the Old Testament, it was... The current testament, it was the current covenant that was, this was happening, this was their holy scriptures, their sacred writings, it was the promises, the covenant that God had made with them and their ancestors. But Jesus said here, I'm not, I'm not here to abolish the covenant, I'm here to accomplish it, to complete it, to bring it to fulfilness so that God's original purpose can be achieved. So think about it like this, if, if the old covenant was, was like a project, Jesus was going to finish it. Or if the, old, if the old covenant was like a game, Jesus was here to win it. Or if the old covenant was like a, a maths problem, like algebra or something, Jesus was here to solve it. Or if, if the old testament was like a if the old covenant was like a plane, Jesus was here to land it. Okay, and this this was mind blowing for his listeners. It was such such a new thing that Jesus was saying he was going to fulfil all that had gone before. In himself. Now, as the Son of God, Jesus could fulfill the law by perfectly obeying its requirements. And as the Savior of the world, Jesus could fulfill those predictions that those ancient prophets had made about the Messiah and the coming kingdom. But this is the phenomenal thing, like how God's purpose was going to be achieved and accomplished. It wasn't through philosophies. It wasn't through principles. It wasn't through practices. It was through a person. And that's what was so unprecedented about his claim. No one who had ever lived had dared to be so bold as Jesus. Abraham, Moses, David, they were heroes of the Jewish past. But despite their faithfulness, they had flaws and failings and they could never fulfill the law. And they were certainly not the one who was ultimately going to achieve God's purposes and his plans. And here's Jesus, this guy standing on a hillside saying, here's a new world order. Here's a new way of living and being. Here's a new way of connecting with God, and I am going to fulfill it. I don't know about you, but if you were in the crowd that day, you really only have two options. Are you in or are you out? Because if you're sitting there listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom of God and how it's for the poor and, and the pure and those who love the enemies, you really have to decide if you're going to believe him and buy into it, or if you're going skeptical and you're going to walk away. Because that's kind of the choice that Jesus presents. His teachings are so revolutionary, so radical. He is bringing something bigger and something bolder and something broader than anyone has ever seen. But for many people who were listening, it was just too much. It was too new. It was, it was too unproven. And, and his critics claimed that Jesus was out of touch with reality, that this new world order was just too far-fetched. It was impossible to live this way. They failed to see that in and through Jesus. Anyone Anyone can be empowered to live this new life. But there were people who dared to believe. There were people who put their trust in Jesus, who rolled up their sleeves and said, I'm in, and they committed themselves to living for him and like him. And, and they saw Jesus as they followed him practice what he preached. As he traveled, he healed the sick. He had compassion on the poor. He lift up, lifted up the downcast and he loved his enemies. And Jesus empowered his first followers to live the same way. And then for the last 2,000 years, his followers have literally changed the world. They've established hospitals and schools, they've set up social support services uh, for the vulnerable, they've created inspirational arts and music and poetry and plays, they've uh, put ethical practices into trade and commerce, of codified languages, invented technologies, stood up for justice, fed the hungry, showed hospitality and fought against racial inequality. Those who believed in Jesus, those who lived out his values of the new world order, radically changed our world. And so I guess that decision that the crowd faced 2,000 years ago It's actually the same decision that Jesus presents us with today. We have to decide if we are in or if we're out. You see, at that time, Jesus' teachings were very, very new. They were largely unproven. And people were sceptical about anything that could come from this man standing on the side of a hill. How could a new world order be established with no military might, with no political power, with no economic influence? But 2,000 years later, history has proven the vitality of God's kingdom values. History has proven the enduring change that this new world order has brought to society and to us. Author Philip Yancey puts it like this. He said, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a paradoxical key to abundant life paradoxically, we get this abundant life by investing in others, by taking courageous stands for justice, by ministering to the weak and needy, by pursuing God and not self. You know, through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a new world order to our society. He offers us new life to you and to me. So just as we kind of finish, I just want to encourage us to pause and consider one of two things. First one is this, you may be sceptical about Jesus. You might not be sure if he stacks up. And so if you're in that boat, I invite you to look through history, to look at the positive influence that Jesus has had on our world. Now, I need to admit that the Christian church has got a lot wrong through the centuries. And there's been a lot of hurt and heartache, and you may have experienced that personally in your own life from particular churches. And I'm sorry for that, there is, there is no excuse, but I want you to remember that the vast majority of Christians have had a profound and inspirational difference on our world. They've tried to, as best they can, apply Jesus' teachings to everyday life, and, and it's important to keep that perspective in mind when you are deciding if you're in or out. And if you want to talk uh, further about that, I'd love to chat with you afterwards um, if that's if that's you. Maybe you're in the second group, maybe you are a Christian here this morning and you've decided that you're in, that you've trusted Jesus with all you have and all you are, and you are trying, emphasis on the trying, to put it into practice, to live out his teachings in everyday life. And I want to encourage you because it is hard. Jesus taught some very hard truths. But I also want to remind you that Jesus is with us. In fact, one of the last promises he gave his followers is that I am with you always. And I don't know about you, but I find that very comforting and very empowering. So I just invite you to reread the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you might want to think about which resonates with you the most. Which kingdom value do you want to see more of in your life? What do you need to ask Jesus for to help you with, to empower you with this week? So I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, quiet time to think and pray, uh, pause, and then um, I'll close up in prayer. God, it's definitely true to say that we are living in changing times. Um, We're grateful for your constant grace and truth in our lives. And uh, Jesus, we just are grateful for the glimpse that you've given us of you, and um, how you've revealed through the Sermon on the Mount this new world order that you call us to live, a lifestyle that uh, is in response to your love, where we live and love like you. And so this week, may we remember that we need you. May we be humble and merciful. May we seek justice and truth. May we be pure in hearts and, and be peacemakers as we trust you in all times And as we see your new world order bring change to our world and and maybe we may we be part of that too, for your name's sake. Amen.